a colleague called me that night at home and said, I need to have a talk with you. This is career suicide. This is no win. At your stage of your career, you're just at an important inflection point. You're at this number one rated network. Are you crazy? You have such a future. Beth Comstock had a great thing going on. And yet, she was considering walking away from it all for something much riskier. It was almost like the more they said that, the more I was convinced I had to go do this job. I'm David Fisher, and you're listening to Three and a Half Degrees, an original podcast from Facebook. The online world has given us an extraordinary number of ways to connect. We used to toss around the term six degrees of separation, like we're all just six introductions away from meeting anyone on Earth. Today, thanks to the internet, that's just three and a half degrees. As the pace of change speeds up in the coming years, you can bet that number will shrink even further. In this podcast, we'll investigate what the ability to connect means for our lives and our businesses. Each episode will tell the story of two very different business leaders who are pushing the boundaries of what it means to be an entrepreneur or CEO. And then we bring them together to talk about their learnings and their goals. If you've ever changed jobs, and who hasn't, you know it's scary. You walk away from the known into the unknown. New relationships, new processes, new ways to fail. And in Beth's case, it wasn't like she was leaving a job she hated. She was happy at CBS working as head of entertainment publicity. CBS was amazing at the time. It had gone from like worst to first. It was having amazing success. Back then, in the early 90s, CBS was number one among the big three American TV networks. NBC was their arch rival. That's when she got the offer. NBC wanted her to work for them. But there was a catch. When NBC called, I was curious, but NBC was in a huge crisis at the news division at the time. They had had their own version of fake news. This time it was real fake news, in the sense at the time, Dateline NBC had staged a news event. And it almost brought down the news division. That scandal shook the network. Dateline NBC had aired an investigative report about the safety of GM trucks. Dateline producers filmed a test where a car crashed into the side of a truck and the truck burst into flames. Ultimately, NBC was forced to admit that they had rigged the results. What we tried to do in those two crash demonstrations was to illustrate the fire danger. Their reputation, along with the ratings, tanked. This is what Beth would be walking into. Her friends saw red flags. They'd had that job open for six to eight months, and they couldn't find people who wanted to go into that mess. She took the job. Eventually, with Beth at the lead, NBC News recovered its credibility. Dateline found its legs again, and today remains NBC's longest-running primetime show. It finished out last season in the number one spot in its category. To this day, it's one of the most pivotal jobs I've ever had because it unlocked in me this entrepreneur I didn't know I was. This ability to kind of start with nothing and figure out how do you build something. Taking the leap from CBS to NBC was just the beginning. Beth's reputation as someone who promoted positive change within the company grew over the next three decades. She moved up to NBC's parent company, GE, and became their first chief marketing officer in 20 years. 
She spearheaded the launch of MSNBC, an unheard-of partnership between a software giant and a major TV network. She focused the company on driving positive environmental impact. But her toughest gig was convincing GE to take a gamble on an untested platform, streaming video. And back in 2006, moving people away from watching TV was totally unheard of. At the time when we were thinking about Hulu, there was a lot of fear in the media world. Uh, YouTube had erupted, and in the traditional media world, everybody was sitting around going, oh no, like, cats playing pianos, that's the future. We don't know how to do that. We only know how to make sitcoms or dramas. It was the wild west of digital content. There was no blueprint, and definitely no guarantee that an online subscription-based TV network would even work. Hundreds of millions of dollars were on the line. But Beth had a vision for Hulu. She sensed that things were about to shift in the world of video content. That's one of the things about innovation. And if you're an entrepreneur, it's not just the technology. It's not just I have a business model and I've got a better moat than you do. Um, Yeah, those things matter. But why should I follow you? Why do I believe you're going to create this future, especially if you're an entrepreneur, big company or small? I have to believe you have a vision for where that world is going to, what you're going to make happen. And I think that gets lost in innovation. We look for the, the tech, we look for the elegant way we're going to make money, and we forget that it starts with vision and uh, a commitment to make that vision happen. Hulu launched in 2008. Within a few years, it was making $695 million in annual revenue. The accuracy of Beth's judgment call in the future of how we watch TV is abundantly evident today. Ask someone what they're watching. You're likely to hear about a show on Hulu, Amazon, or Netflix. By the time she retired last year, Beth was driving innovation as vice chair at GE. These days, she's focused on helping companies get comfortable with change and embrace innovation, something she talks about in her new book, Imagine It Forward. It is a scary thought to think the world will never be slower than it is right now. And if you think you're going to control it, I've had people say to me, I'm going to control change. No, you're not. We've got our hyperconnectivity. I mean, we're pretty soon we're going to have 50 billion machines connected. There's a lot of connection and opportunity for new innovation, new disruption, and it's making things move so much faster. You're listening to Three and a Half Degrees. I'm David Fisher. Change is uncomfortable for most people, downright nerve-wracking at times. But not changing is usually worse. If you're in business today, you need to get comfortable being uncomfortable. It's a law of nature that also applies to business. Adapt or die. The good news and the bad news is that there is no one-size-fits-all solution. You can adapt in a way that works for your business that may not work for anyone else. It's true for the high-tech company as much as it is for your local mechanic. And it's a lesson that Suzanne Gildert first learned at a very young age. So I grew up in a mid-sized town in the UK called Bolton. It's just outside Manchester. The outskirts of working-class Manchester, England, where Suzanne Gilder grew up, is a long way from the startup mecca of Silicon Valley. She comes from a long line of factory and mill workers, and her first job was in her father's small store. 
My dad has a small retail business, like a grocery store. When he was young, you know, there was the the small row of shops that everyone went to, the bakers, the grocers, the post office, and you did all this. And then that was how things were. And as I grew up, the supermarkets started coming in, things changed in that environment, and it really affected my father's business. So I got to see firsthand the impact of change on the business world at a very ground floor level. As people flocked to supermarkets, independent shopkeepers like your dad suffered. You know, I was growing up with my family. I, I sort of absorbed this this idea that, oh, the supermarkets are bad. They're like, you know, taking away business from the small shops. And that's a bad thing. Suzanne had her sights set on university. She was fascinated by artificial intelligence. And she actually wanted to study quantum physics. But to do that, she needed money. Her dad who'd abandoned his own inventor dreams for a more practical career years earlier, knew she had to get a better job. But that better job, it ended up being with one of her dad's competitors. It was actually one of the ones that was directly competing with my dad's shop, so it was a very interesting dynamic there. And what I realized during that job was it was basically store replenishment. So stocking shelves, uh, making sure everything looks good on the shelves. And it was really boring the kind of boring work that anyone could do, even a robot. Suzanne could see the benefit of machines doing jobs that people would rather not. But such innovation could further hurt a small business owner, like her father. I think it was when I started going to like college and university, I started learning a little bit about you know, how the business world works and how capitalism works, and realizing that this is just something that happens. This is the pace of change. This is competition. You know, you can't protect all the, the small guys. They have to compete on their own. After graduating with a PhD in quantum physics, Suzanne went to work at one of the leading experimental physics companies called D-Wave. So what D-Wave does is they're a quantum computing company, which means they're trying to build a new kind of computer that works a lot faster than classical computers using these strange laws of physics that, um, you know, are very confusing. Suzanne was part of an elite group of scientists working on the world's first quantum computer. But she wasn't satisfied. She had robots on the brain. After countless conversations about it, her boss, Jordy Rose, gave her a push. Jody Rose said, you've got to stop talking about this. You know, it's obviously something you're really passionate about. Why don't you do something? Why don't you start a company to, to do this full time? You know, it's something you're really into. There were drawbacks. She already had a great job at D-Wave, and she had no experience as an entrepreneur. Plus, she'd seen how running a business was a constant struggle for her father. But it felt like a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, and for Suzanne... That outweighed the risk of failure. She left her job at D-Wave and founded Kindred AI. But not before asking for help. Here's Jordy. Literally the day after she quit, she phoned me up and said, hey, um, you want to come over and, and run this for me? Suzanne had ambitious goals for her small business. Big, visionary stuff. Machines that could learn like humans, or as she calls them, synths. They raised more than $40 million, and they got to work. When I started Kindred, I wanted to really tackle this problem of how do we create human-like intelligence in machines. So I really wanted to see the company build sort of human-like robots and uh, have them learning to do things like people do. Within three years, they designed and prototyped a successful warehouse robot. 
and they named it Sort. First, it was going to be a human-like robot that went around a warehouse and picked items. And then it kind of evolved into an arm on a trolley that wheeled around a warehouse to pick up items. And then it evolved into a static arm that just sorted items and people brought the items to the robot. Today, Sort is used by big retailers, including The Gap, to process online orders. It's a huge success. Ironically, the success was kind of a distraction for Suzanne. It didn't fulfill her vision. So even though the robot in the warehouse was understanding the little world it lived in, like it understands really very well all the different objects it has to deal with, how to sort them, what you know the shapes are and things like that. Uh, but it wasn't really like learning in the same way, uh, say, a human baby would learn or something like that. Like Beth Comstock, Suzanne was at her own crossroad. Should she walk away from a successful startup or stay and give up her passion project with no guarantee of success? She remembered a lesson that she learned from her father when the big supermarkets threatened to put his little grocery store out of business. One thing that uh, my dad did with his shop, which was really interesting, is when the big supermarkets came in and started taking away the business, he uh, and my mother, who was like helping him run it, decided to change course, course correct. There was a niche in specialty pet products. So like specialty pet food that the supermarkets didn't have. So they then changed the shop into this kind of more specialty. I think what I learned from that is something doesn't have to be what it is when you start. It can change and morph over its lifetime. And you should always be watching out ahead for those things that are going to disrupt you in the future. So you think maybe you don't learn a lot about disruption and entrepreneurship being uh, in a small retail business uh, in, an, in an industrial town, but I think you do. I think those lessons are universal in business. We had a, a long chat about how to do this, and then I came up with an idea for how we could um, allow Kindred to continue to print money and make everybody happy on the financial side and uh, carve out uh, a part of the AI group that didn't care about money at all, or at least not as a primary objective. It was the right solution. Suzanne didn't have to sacrifice one path for the other. The business could continue while she focused on building synths. As sci-fi as all that sounds, she believes it will actually help improve our lives. I think most people um, are worried about the jobs issue, which I think rightly so. So I get asked about that a lot. There are no easy answers to that question. There are things you can point out, like ask a person, do you like your job? If they say no, then you say, well, why are you worried about a robot taking it? And what they'll then say is, oh, I don't have an income. So really, people don't care about job loss. What they care about is income loss. So we have to find ways of getting around income loss. But I think another thing you could you can say is just people haven't really thought of, like, what are the positive things that these kind of robots could do in your life? A lot of the technologies that are that are coming online now are really being democratized and they're available to everyone. It's incredible to imagine the potential and the implications of the type of work Suzanne is doing, building intelligent robots. What she did, leave a successful business to follow a very uncertain path is a risk that not many of us are willing or even tempted to take. The sort robot she helped create had a great business model, and it was working. But at a gut level, she knew there was something else out there for her, a higher calling, if you will. Innovation is like oxygen. 
companies need it to survive. It could be an innovative idea, like merging a software company with a major news network. Or it might mean a giant leap of faith to embrace a new type of technology, like AI. Beth and Suzanne have had very different journeys. But something they have in common is a prescient understanding that companies need to embrace change if they want to last. I'm excited to bring them together and hear their conversation. So let's reduce three and a half degrees down to one. Do you find that people are generally uh, excited and optimistic when you lay out some of these paths and um, visions and predictions? Or do you find people are a little bit scared of the future and a bit like they don't want things to change? Uh, I kind of get a mix of both. I get a mix of both. And um, I feel generally uh, people are afraid um, because they just are afraid of what they don't know. And I think in our culture today, in some ways, this is a, a data only makes it worse. People want absolutes. They want the data before they can fully take the next step. And so you're, you're asking people to imagine something that isn't here yet. So this idea of concept robots or concept whatever and allowing people to interact with it and see it in their own terms, that was often the way I found to help people get through their fears. They had to kind of see it and play with it and touch it and understand it themselves rather than be told this is the future. That's really interesting. One thing I found as well is that sometimes people just need to vent their fears and frustrations. So I've had a, a lot of people being very, maybe argumentative, but just very defensive. So if you're talking about some some sort of tech thing, like a new piece of software or, you know, a new like web app, people don't tend to have this reaction. You know, people like, oh, that's interesting. Or yeah, maybe I'll take a look at that. But if you start talking about things to do with uh, replicating humans or understanding how human minds work or conscious robots or all this kind of thing, you get this really weird reaction, which is this huge defensive sort of um, people start you know, firing a barrage of, of pointed questions at you. I actually am, um, have been studying AI from a work perspective. How's it going to impact the future of work? And I believe our job is to not make our machines more human, but to make us humans more human, more creative. I think we're at this interesting point in time when um, we just almost can't imagine where science is going to take us. And I'm curious, Suzanne, as you're thinking about this unlocking of the brain through artificial intelligence and what you call them synths, I mean, it's these, these uh, animated forms. Uh, how does that work? How, will it how do you think it will make us more appreciate our humanity? I actually think it'll make us more human by revealing some of these inner conflicts that we all have within our own minds and between people and maybe make us a little bit more appreciative um, of the fact that these conflicts exist and it's not always easy for people to get on, even with themselves sometimes. So getting over the fear of early adoption and managing risk is a, is a big challenge to innovation, especially in bigger companies. Um, and I, I think partly it's just opening up to new ideas and perspectives. And I think it's one, you have to set yourself up to constantly meet the Suzannes of the world. You have to know the people who are creating on the edge. You have to have part of your organization whose job it is to live in that world, to help translate it back to the organization. I'm also really big on partnership. Uh, I think that's how you navigate risk and reward. Um, it may be that as a big company, it's not time for you to take on cryptocurrency or AI 
but there's got to be a way that you can hang around, that you can start to do small experiments, that you can find one area of your company that it makes sense to start to learn and test. Without that, you're going you're gonna to miss huge opportunities. So I think that's often people are waiting for it to be perfect. They think they have to do everything themselves. So with Suzanne, for example, uh, from a big or a mid-sized company perspective, it, the, the first step would be to reach out and say, Suzanne, hey, I'm at XYZ Big Company. I happen to work at GE, and we're looking at robotics as it, as it is either the future of manufacturing or the future of how people work. Can we come and learn? Can we bring a problem that we're trying to solve uh, within the company and just brainstorm with you about how you'd approach it? From there, you say, hey, this is interesting what you're doing, and you know, maybe there's a pilot project we could fund. So it, it's obvious that startups and big companies should be talking more to each other because they both have uh, things that the, the other guy wants. So the, the startups don't tend to have this problem of lack of innovation and sort of um, you know, things not, not being able to move. Um, but they have other problems, like they have no money. Um, yeah. And then the, the, big, the big companies, they like often, especially incumbents, can have a lot of cash or at least they have some cash, but they don't have any kind of knowledge of how to use it to, to innovate. So I think, yeah, getting those two ecosystems to talk more. And I think like from, from the startup's point of view, Startups tend to be like, let's go and get VC. Um, it, it's the default. And I think thinking more about strategic corporate investors could be really important. And I think what puts startup founders off that is they sort of think, if I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be like marrying myself to, to a large strategic and they're going to be then... I don't know, stymieing my <laughs> innovation a bit. So it's almost like you have the exact problem that they were trying to solve in the first place. Yeah, you have to champion the startup through the system because you're right. I mean, first of all, you get lost in many of these big companies. Um, you need to find the mid-sized companies that you can start to apply it in too. So you need applications. You need, uh, it's a lot of championship building. Uh, are people excited about it? Will they devote their time to making this project work? A lot of people get excited, but they don't actually devote time to it. So it's more than just the money. I think what big companies often do that stymies it is they think, well, we can do this ourselves. And so they get in to, you know, and start talking to Suzanne and Sanctuary, and then they decide they can do it themselves, but they really can't. Yeah, I think the biggest challenge that uh, myself and we're facing as a company at the moment is uh, trying to find her... Um, initial markets for early versions of what we're doing. We're looking for these like really early applications of things where the technology is not finished yet. Is there a way you can find a market for that? And I think that's, that's the really big challenge at the moment. I feel like my mission these days is working with companies to unlock their courage, to try things, to partner more, to t really almost create themselves as this kind of living lab of change, to get out in the world, to go see where robots are coming to work. Maybe what we could do is conspire and figure out ways we can start putting your synths in places that people can discover them, uh, sort of like pop-up synths and find different situations. I don't know, I've got to go ride the New York subway soon. And just find these, these synths in ways that would be much more approachable and less fearful. Uh, put them in schools, put them in hospitals. I don't know, you've really sparked my imagination to think of like, where would I like to meet a synth? 
and uh, what would I find find out from them? Well, one thing I'd love to have them do is actually go into big companies and give the pitch themselves as to why you need innovation. <laughs> ah, Beth, uh, you're on. I'll help you do that. That would be something we can conspire. I'll help. Uh, I'll introduce a synth to a big company. It'll sort of like be, bring a synth to workday. What do you think? Yeah, exactly. That sounds great. There are plenty of reasons businesses believe they shouldn't have to change. They can't afford it, or they have an if-it-ain't-broke-don't-fix-it mentality. Or they simply fail to anticipate the future. History is littered with businesses who couldn't or wouldn't keep up with the pace of change, and as a result, became irrelevant. If you want more proof, listen to this. Only 71 companies remain from the original 1955 Fortune 500 list. Change isn't a one-time affair. The need to innovate never ends. The beauty of it is that there's no single right action here. There are a million ways to innovate. If you want to stay in business, you need to embrace change. It's scary, but not half as scary as being left behind. Three and a Half Degrees is an original podcast from Facebook. Listen for free on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Three and a Half Degrees, The Power of Connection. That's Three and a Half Degrees, all spelled out. For more information and a look behind the scenes, follow us on Instagram, at Three and a Half Degrees. I'm David Fisher. Thanks for listening.